Good morning, church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. And today I want to talk about good news. Good news. And and beginning with the Advent offering is a great start. Because to be honest, good news can feel like it's at a premium nowadays. Even these first couple of weeks of 2022 have felt more frazzled and fraught than, than I would have liked. Having to be back online today and next week when we had just begun to find our footing being together in person this fall is, is, is just one example. In the last year, we've seen vaccines and variants and a virus that continues to disrupt in small ways and large all of our lives. We've seen billionaires go up into space even as we continue to face dehumanizing poverty and a climate crisis here on Earth. Big structural issues like gun violence and racial, educational, economic, and healthcare inequity continue across the nation and here in our own city. We have grieved the loss of loved ones as well as the non-arrival of ones long hoped for. Now there have been glimmers, there have been sparks, and even seasons of good news. I'm, I'm grateful to have had conversations with many of you as you've shared the ups and downs of life, relationships, families, and work, and the winding turns of your spiritual journeys. We've celebrated pandemic weddings, babies arriving among us as well, job changes, mental health, and spiritual breakthroughs. There has been so much, so much joy and sorrow that we have experienced while continuing to bear the exhaustion and the effort of navigating life in a pandemic. And as I've reflected on the concept of news, as I've thought about it, I've realized that, that news, it isn't just out there. It's not just a story of someone far away from us. Although the distance our screens project can make us think so, news, news is never just out there. News always affects someone, always impacts someone. Those who experience it, those who hear it, those who see it. News always means something for someone. This last week, we marked one year since the insurrection, the attack on the U.S. Capitol, and ironically, it came on the Feast of Epiphany, the day in the Christian calendar when we remember the visit to Jesus of the Magi from the East and the desperate attempt to maintain power at all costs by a man named Herod. Now, for folks around the country and around the world, this was news. For us, it was more than that. This is our city. This was happening in our backyard. News always means something for someone. And I don't know about you, but I've been needing some good news lately. I've been yearning for the joy of good news recently. I've been, you know, I'm so grateful for those things we've named and we've celebrated, and yet I've been feeling deep in my bones that desperation for some good news that that goes deeper, that makes a more substantive and significant difference that lasts a while, that withstands the immediate circumstance. And that's why as we begin this new year, this new year of 2022, we are starting with a series in the Gospel of Mark. The gospel, that's what gospel means, it's good news. In Greek, euangelion. The series that we're beginning today will take us through Easter, and then we'll take a break. We'll pick it up in the fall, we'll continue it next January, and we will finish next Easter, Easter 2023. 
One of the rhythms we build into our preaching calendar is regularly coming back to the stories of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. In 2018 and 2019, we were in the Gospel of John. A few years before that, we were in Luke's Gospel. A few years from now, it's a safe bet we'll hit up Matthew's Gospel as well. And we do this because Jesus is the one who defines our faith and our life. Jesus is the one through whom we interpret and understand the rest of the Bible. Jesus is the one who shows us most clearly what God is like and what we are to be like. So it's important that we keep Jesus before us. And not just a Jesus of our own making or a Jesus pieced together from things we vaguely remember, but the Jesus revealed in the Scriptures. But it's more than that, too. The way the church has understood the Gospels for 2,000 years is that in some profound spiritual way, when we read the Gospels, these stories and sayings of Jesus, we provide opportunity and occasion for the Spirit of God to meet us and reveal the living Christ to us. I can't explain exactly how or why, but I know and I've experienced that whenever I read the Gospels, whenever I am reminded of who Jesus is and what he said and what he did, my soul comes alive in a more real way. And I am heartened to remember that no matter what Christians in America or around the world may do that I may not understand or agree with, the Jesus I follow is true and good. That means something for my life and for our collective life, and for our world. Now, even though we're going through this book over the course of some 40 weeks in the next 16 months, which feels like a long time, there's a lot we won't be able to cover on Sundays. Today, for example, just to prepare you, I won't be talking about every verse that was read. I won't be talking about John the Baptist, or Jesus' baptism, or Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. What I will do is drop a few links in the sermon notes to include other helpful materials, such as a fantastic sermon that Marissa Stubbs preached on John the Baptist a few years ago, and an Ash Wednesday homily that I gave about what trials and temptations in the desert can mean for us. Okay, those those will be in the sermon notes, so you can check up on them afterwards. And so as we begin this series, as we begin, Mark, let me encourage you to not just join us on Sundays to worship with us and listen to our preaching team and whatever guests we invite to speak about the passage for the week, but also a couple things. First, to download the reading plan we've put together. We're putting the link on the screen. We'll drop this in the sermon notes as well. This is a reading plan that we put together. It includes reflection questions to prompt your own soul work, to tune your own awareness to the work of the Spirit in you. So that's number one. And number two, Set aside an hour and a half, okay? An hour and a half that's less than one movie or two to three episodes of that show you just watched to listen to an audio version of Mark's gospel all the way through in one sitting. Okay, that's how the initial audience would have received it and heard it. That's how it was written. It was written to be listened to in whole. And so again, in these sermon notes, I'll post the link to one audio version. I'll post the link to the reading plan and those couple of resources that I mentioned earlier for you all to follow up on this week. Let me start with some background on the Gospel of Mark. Okay, We don't know for sure who the author of this Gospel is. Mark was one of the most common Roman names of the day, Marcus. 
Now, traditionally, the author is identified as John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the missionary and church leader whom we meet in Acts. John Mark was a protege of the apostles Paul and Peter, and it was Peter who, according to church tradition, was Mark's main source for what he wrote down and what we have today. Now, it's widely accepted that Mark's gospel was the first one that was written. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they both draw from Mark's material. They both build on it and expand on it. And Mark's Gospel is usually dated to sometime between A.D. 66 and 74. 66 and 74, which means it was written 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, why why is that context important? Well, that means that this Gospel was written around the time of an emperor by the name of Nero. You may have heard of him. He was a narcissistic, paranoid, and slightly deranged ruler, which is a terrible combination to have in a person with so much power. So it was a time of great upheaval and unrest, in particular for Jews and Jewish Christians, which most early Christians were. There was increasing violence and oppression by the Roman Empire, which intensified Jewish reactions. Those reactions eventually spilled over into open rebellion, The Jewish people actually reclaimed control of Jerusalem for a brief period. And then, as is often the case for those who challenged the empire, the empire struck back, brutally and decisively. In AD 70, Jerusalem was recaptured by the Romans and the temple was destroyed. Now, it's hard to quantify just how devastating an event this was for Jews and the early Christians. Think about it. The center and focal point of their life, their worship and their culture, the house of God, the physical representation of God's presence among them was demolished. Their spirits were crushed. Their hopes dashed. It was a time of great angst, of uncertainty, of oppression. Now, one theory about Mark's gospel is that it was written by Mark after he had been with Peter in Rome which is where Peter was martyred in the mid-60s, and that it was addressed to the community of Christians there in Rome who were figuring out what it meant to be followers of Jesus in a time and place in which persecution abounded and security and stability were hard to come by, to those wondering if God was still at work in the face of their trials. Discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, discipleship is a key theme in Mark's gospel. And over the next year or so, we'll get to see the flaws and failures of Jesus' disciples as if to encourage us that God is always at work in us and sometimes in spite of us. And what I'm saying is, it is possible and it is plausible that Mark's gospel was written to Christians in crisis in the capital city of the empire. So maybe there's something here for us, too. It's not the most popular gospel, though, Mark. Matthew has beautiful stories and the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the first book in the New Testament, so let's be real, that's usually where people start. Luke has the Christmas story and the parables we love of the Good Samaritan and, you know, the prodigal son. John goes deep, in the beginning was the word, you know, mystery and philosophy, and then the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. By comparison, Mark seems unwieldy and awkward. The stories, they bounce around. Scholars have noted that the language Mark uses, is it's plain. It's the Greek that would have been spoken on the streets, not found in books. Yet that's exactly 
what made and makes Mark's gospel so accessible. He uses language we can all understand, language that brings stories to life. You know, Mark used, uses the term immediately or and then so much, 41 times compared to 10 by the authors of the rest of the New Testament, 41 times. He uses that term so much that Bible translators tried to smooth it out because it was reading too much like an excited kid telling a story. He switches between past and present tenses to draw you in as with the best of storytellers. And sometimes he seems to pose questions directly to us, to the audience. What Mark wanted to communicate to his first listeners, and I think to us as well, is that this all matters. This story is important. This truth is urgent. This person demands a response. And, and I hope that as we go through this series together, we will encounter Jesus Christ. And as we, as individuals and as a community, answer the questions that are posed to us, as we respond to the calling that is set before us, as we say yes to the things God invites us to, as we do those things, that we as individuals and as a community will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We will look more like Jesus. And we will experience the joy of the gospel in a new and deep and lasting way. And we will be inspired and empowered to see the good news of God's kingdom here on earth as we pray every week. I'm fired up, y'all. God is moving. And God will move. And in the time that remains today, I'm going to talk about the opening verses and the closing verses of the passage Matthew read earlier. The words will be on the screen, as usual, but let me encourage you to have your own Bibles with you, to use your own Bibles. And as we go through this series, take notes, scribble questions, underline things that stand out to you or trouble you. See how stories fit together on the page. Here's how Mark begins. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are at least three things that are happening in this one sentence. First, Mark is doing something like the Gospel writer John by alluding to the opening words of the Bible in Genesis, the beginning. It's as if he's saying to his listeners, God is doing something as original and significant as the creation of the universe. You're going to want to hear this. Second, Mark is drawing on the Old Testament concept of good news. He quotes from Isaiah 40 just a moment later, but in Isaiah 61, another passage that becomes attached to the life and work of Jesus, it says this, Yahweh God's Spirit is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn. Mark was plumbing the deep-seated longings and hopes of his mostly Jewish-raised listeners for the one who would bring God's kingdom, the one who would restore the fortunes of God's people, the Messiah, the Christ. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one we've been seeking. This is the one who will bring about what we have been aching for. This is the good news of Jesus, God's chosen one, the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies. 
The third thing Mark was doing in this opening line was tapping into the language and context of the day, first century Rome. There's an inscription that was found by archaeologists in a place called Priene, modern-day Turkey. It was dated to around 9 BC, and it honors the birth of the first Roman emperor, Augustus. And here's the translation. Since Providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might make war cease and create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. See, that term euangelion didn't just mean any good old news. Any old good news. It was often used to describe military victories. And in the context of the Roman Empire, and in the context of the day that Mark was writing, it came to be attached to the emperors who claimed to be gods, who were acclaimed as savior and peace bringer. You see it. The good news of Jesus Christ has always been political in that it has always challenged the way we live and organize our life together. It has always challenged the gods and idols of the times we live in. It has always challenged us to consider the narratives, the structures, and the prevailing myths, the things in which we are tempted or invited to place our hope and our trust. When Mark wrote the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, God's Son, to a community at the heart of the Roman Empire. He was saying something deeply subversive and risky. As if to say our pledge of allegiance is not to a flag or to a country, but to a kingdom of love, shalom, and nonviolence. A kingdom that invites everyone and includes all who will say yes. A kingdom that has no boundaries or borders. A kingdom that is peaceable and gracious and holy and just. A kingdom that sets the value of human beings above the whims of mammon and marketplace. A kingdom that invites us to be more than consumers and reminds us we cannot thrive except together. What are the myths of our time and place? What are the lies we are invited to believe? What is it among the siren songs in our own spirits that the good news of Jesus Christ needs to remove and replace? Because we all have those faulty foundations, those sandy substructures. It's no wonder that when Jesus begins his public ministry, Mark says, he came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. You may be more familiar with another translation where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus came saying, I have good news for you and repent. Now, I don't know about you, but the word repent does not naturally elicit good feelings in me. And yet Jesus puts them together. Repent and believe the good news. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. And I think all of what Jesus says is good news. And yet I know how easy it is to lose sight of how good this news really is. How easy it is to accept and believe and live out a pretty good gospel, if that. A sometimes good gospel or even a not bad gospel. 
And that's what we present to people and what we say and in how we live. The good news of Jesus is really truly good news. It's the best news and it is good news for everyone throughout history and whatever your age, gender, ethnicity, relational status, sexual orientation, or religious affiliation. But what is it? What is the good news? What is the gospel? How would you explain the gospel? Would you talk about sin? Would you talk about the cross? Because if you think about it, this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He hadn't yet died on the cross. So what was he proclaiming? It's this. Here comes God's kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near. This is a term you may already be familiar with. It's an important concept to know and understand because, well, we talk about it a lot here at Christ City. It's part of our vision statement to see the flourishing of God's kingdom on display in every life, in every sphere of life, in D.C. and beyond. But more importantly, it's a good concept to know and understand because Jesus talked about it a lot. More than about sin, more than about money, more than anything else, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. Another way of describing the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. The rule and reign of God. In other words, what it looks like when God is in charge. You know, we might think of kingdom as a political or geographical entity like the kingdom of Monaco or the United Kingdom, but the kingdom of God is the expression of God. Okay? So just as when we express ourselves, we might raise a hand or we might turn our bodies away or we might speak words, when God expresses God's self, there is truth and healing, and goodness, and justice, and restoration. And anywhere God's will is done is within God's kingdom. And those words from Isaiah's prophecy, which we read earlier, which Jesus claimed for himself, good news for the poor, freedom for the captive and the oppressed, sight for the blind, hearing for the deaf, healing for the sick, cleansing for the unclean, life for those who are dead. This is what God's kingdom looks like. This is what it looks like when God is in charge, when God expresses God's self. And this kingdom supersedes and transcends every other kingdom. The good news of the Roman Empire pales in significance when placed alongside the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of the American Empire, of America first, cannot hold a candle to the glory of the city whose gates are always open and whose light is the very presence of God, and whose inhabitants are a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic gathering. This kingdom, Mark is saying, is here. Because Jesus is here. Jesus, the herald, the harbinger, the bringer of God's kingdom of life and liberation of joy and justice. Jesus, the opposer of unholy empire and short-sighted individualism and isolationism. Jesus, the destroyer of lies and half-truths, the dismantler of oppression and exploitation. In Jesus, God's kingdom has come near. And if this is true, this demands that we change our hearts and lives. That we repent. A word that may conjure up images of an angry preacher talking about fire and brimstone, but the word in Greek simply means rethink your thinking. Turn around. Change the motivation and direction of your life. 
Louis Newman, one of the leading scholars on Jewish ethics, wrote a book called Repentance. And in it, he said this, Sin is about pretending that something is true when in fact it is not. Idolatry is pretending that something is divine and worthy of our devotion when in fact it is not. So repentance is all about choosing truth over deception. It's a conscious decision to move in a different direction. It's an intentional choosing of life and truth. This is how the Old Testament prophets would have understood repentance. This is how Jesus would have understood repentance. Not as feeling bad per se or just saying sorry, but about naming the lies of the empire and the culture and even the ones we're telling ourselves and choosing instead God's way of love and justice. It doesn't really make sense to say, I have really good news about reality. Things are not as you thought they were and you should feel really bad about it. But it does make sense to say, I have really good news about reality. Things are not as you thought they were. You may want to rethink some things. You may want to reconsider some things, to rearrange, to reorder, to revise some things. God's kingdom is among us. You may want to turn to a more whole and holy way of living and being. Now, you may be listening today and you only need to turn a little, but... Even a couple degrees to the left can land you in a whole different place if you keep walking that way. Others of you may be listening today and and you need to turn a lot. Because your life is going to go over the edge of the cliff if you don't do a 180. During Advent, I talked about Rahab, the faithful. And about how faith demands action. How belief is not just intellectual assent, but it is to act as if something is true. It's to trust it, to rely on it, to cling to it, and to act accordingly. Hence the translation from the common English Bible, trust the good news. Belief is holistic. It involves all of me, who I am, and what I do. I believe, I trust the good news of God, that God's kingdom of love and justice and righteousness and peace is among us through Jesus and I act accordingly. The challenge as Mark puts it to us is this. How will your life be changed and transformed and made glorious by the good news of Jesus Christ? If Jesus has begun the work of making all things new and how and all things right, how then will you act? What might that look like at your workplace or in your home with your spouse or significant other or with your friends or your kids, with your housemates, those you consider enemies or those who might consider you to be an enemy? How might we live that out in this church community? Where will you start? It may be getting plugged into, you know, back into spiritual community after a while apart. I'd be seeking out a small group or being honest with a trusted friend for the first time in a long time. It may be acknowledging that the addiction you turn to to help you make it through the pandemic is no longer just numbing the pain, but is actually killing you. Spiritually, relationally, emotionally. It may be naming and unmasking the lies that you've believed about yourself, about your work or your worth, about your relationships or your calling about what it means to be a Christian in America. Maybe there's someone who's watching 
and you've never really given thought to who you're becoming or what your life is about, especially especially amidst the chaos and the storms of the last couple of years, but you've found your way onto this YouTube video and there's something about this man Jesus and this kingdom of his that seemed like an intriguing place to start again. If that's you, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Jesus came into our world announcing God's good news. He said, now is the time. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. Friends, the invitation before us is nothing less than the fullness of Christ formed in us and among us, the fullness of life in God's kingdom, and the fullness of that kingdom here on earth, right here, right now. One scholar wrote, what Jesus is beginning is the transformation of this world. The flourishing of God's kingdom in every life and every sphere of life in D.C. and beyond. It isn't an either-or proposition. It's all of the above. This is good news.